Amen. Certainly good to see you this morning. It's a beautiful day outside. It's a great blessing for me to be back here with you at Bethel. As you know, I've said probably more times than you care to hear that Bethel is where my spiritual journey in life began. I believe I was always a born-again child of God from an age that I can't even remember. But my, my discipleship journey, my conversion, if you will, began at Bethel. And I'm so thankful, and I have such, a, such a, um, an affection for each of you. And it's such a blessing to be able to come back and, and share time with you and uh, fellowship and see you. And um, just rejoicing in that. And Sister Tracy was noting as we came down the steps that um, our church journey started out with, with two small girls. And now we're down to our last two girls. They're not small, 17 and 14. But that is where our journey is now. We're, we're on our last two girls, and they go with us. So um, I'm just so thankful that we could uh, have some of them here with us. And I apologize for missing last night. Uh, it's really Brother Danny's fault because I tried to hitch a ride with him, and he wouldn't let me. He didn't want to ride that far with me. I'm just kidding. It, the timing didn't work out, and the girls were in a tennis match yesterday in Birmingham, so I didn't want them to drive separately uh, on the roads. And so um, we waited for them, and, and we drove and got in uh, to the Sanfords last night about, uh, about 10 o'clock. So um, sorry about that, but uh, certainly glad we were able to get here safely and, and very concerned and um, sorry to hear about the, the destruction and death that, that came last night. It just seems like it's always occurring regularly across the South. So I know those families would certainly um, need our prayers from all of the, the tragedy that's occurred. And I thank God that, that you were spared from too much destruction or, or damage up here it seems but it is a great blessing to be back with you and I hope not to take up too much time this morning but to introduce a subject that's on my mind and Lord willing I, if the Lord leads I hope to speak about the subject uh, through this weekend the subject is commitment commitment and if you'll turn in your, your Bibles to 1 Peter 2 and 23 commitment is something that I think is very lacking in general in our culture, in our day and time. You know, if something hurts or something bothers you or a marriage gets on the rocks or a friendship goes south or a job is not like you expected it to be, we just sort of, you know, jump ship. It's very easy uh, to do that in this culture that we live in. It used to be years ago that I've heard, and I've actually experienced this, that you could a handshake, you know, would be a contract where you could say, I'm committed to this. But as an attorney by trade, <laughs> handshakes are not, not in vogue anymore. So it's, it's not about handshakes anymore. It's pages upon pages upon pages of, of legal jargon that usually is not worth the paper that it's written on when someone comes to break it and, and uh, do away with their commitment. So I want to talk to you about commitment, and I think there is no better way to introduce this subject than to look at the greatest commitment of all time. And that's what we find in 1 Peter 2 and 23. And it says, speaking of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, and speaking of Jesus not just in general, but at a specific time when th certain things were happening in the life of Christ while he was here on earth. It says, who, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him, that's the Father, 
to him that judgeth righteously. Now the de definition of committed right there is to place alongside, to deposit as a trust or for protection. When you think about commitment, a few people come to mind, and not necessarily in a good way. I have been amazed, I guess the word would be, I've marveled at the young woman who, I think she's 20 now, her name is uh, Greta Thunberg, I hope that's how you say her name, but she is, at age 15, you know, she became an environmental activist over in Europe, and I've seen her face pop up, and, and I totally, totally disagree with what the young lady promotes, and she's completely, scientifically even, off base, but you got to admire her commitment. I mean, she is committed to what she believes, and she is an activist since she was, you know, she started really publicly when she was 15. It means the seeds of that had to be sowed two or three years before that, 13, 12 years old. And, and what a sad waste of time and life and commitment that is. But you have to admire the commitment. Are we committed to our cause in such a way? Think about that. She's across the world. She's worldwide known at 15 years old, 20 now. Her commitment is known throughout the world, and she's respected in many, many circles. I personally don't respect the position that she has, but in, in some Marvel-type way, I, I respect her commitment. It's, in, it's just amazing. I have a, a cousin who I'm very close with, baptized him a few years ago. He's around my age, and during the years following 9-11, when the terrorists murdered so many of our fellow brothers and sisters in America, he was a prison guard assigned to Guantanamo Bay. And if you know anything about that, in Guantanamo down in Cuba, at the American base there, they have a prison, and that's where they held many suspected and truthful, true terrorists throughout the world. They would arrest them, capture them or whatever, and they would hold them there. And my cousin shared with me the commitment that most of those terrorists had that three times a day without, there, there would be a riot in the prison if they were not allowed to get down on their knees with their, their prayer blankets or their, their prayer cloths or whatever and turn towards Mecca and pray three times a day. And in a strange way, you know, in a strange way, my cousin said, you know, that, he said, that impacted me. He said, I didn't believe what they believed and I didn't follow what they followed. He said, but their commitment was admirable, even if it's totally off base. <laughs> and in a strange way, years later, you know, he would talk to me about that and, and that commitment in a strange way and not in a negative way, but it somehow inspired him. You know, he said, I need to get busy with my life and be committed to the greatest cause that has ever existed. You know, he, he saw the example of someone who was completely off in their thinking and their beliefs, committed to something. I tell you, in many ways, those type of examples just shame us, don't they? But there's no example that could shame us. And I'm not here to shame that's a taboo today, isn't it? You know, don't shame me. You know, haters back off. You know? <laughs> you know, I'm not here to shame, but I personally feel ashamed whenever I look at the commitment of something like that. And, and, it, and it ramps up on steroids, you might say, whenever I look at the commitment of Christ. Because he's my savior. 
He's the one that is the reason that I will be in heaven. And it says in the worst moments of his life, you think about the worst moments of your life, when you've been tested the most, or whenever the trials and the troubles and the tribulations and the tragedies of this life affect you and touch you. If you're like me, you probably think back in shame in how you reacted in those circumstances, how your commitment either displayed itself or didn't display itself. And when Christ was in the throes, not just of man, of, of men's devices, but when he was in the throes of even the, the devices, if you will, of God, of the judgment of God being poured out upon him, not for anything that he did, but for your sins and for my sins, this is how he reacted. When he was reviled, now no question that reviling was at the hands of men, and no question that the suffering that is specifically referenced there was at the hands of men who had sent him through three mock trials in one night who had violated every Roman law, every Judean law, every possible law that could be violated. They violated those laws, put him to trial three different times. These were not appeals <laughs> from one court to another court to another. These were three separate trials in one night. Imagine what the ACLU would do with that today with any person. But you don't hear the ACLU or those type of groups talk too much about the just one who was reviled like he was and mocked and tried falsely three times in one night, in the middle of the night. And it says that he did not revile back and he did not threaten whenever he was suffered, but he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. It's very interesting that if you read on through 1 Peter, 1 Peter, the majority of the book is about suffering, about dealing with sufferings in this life and that's a kind of a whole other level if you think about getting on the the right page of commitment just getting on the page of I'm committed to the Lord you know that I'm not even talking at this point about being committed to the level that you are enduring suffering but that's what first Peter is about that whenever you are committed to serving the Lord you're going to endure some form of suffering thank goodness in the country that we live the suffering that is endured is not anything comparable to what they endured in those days. But Peter is, is the whole, most of the book is about suffering. And it's interesting that he goes to the ultimate example of enduring suffering and how Jesus handled that suffering in order to give us the example of how we should be committed. You know, I think of what Jesus said when he was going to the cross. You know, he, he gave us, uh, he gave one speech there for sure whenever they were leading him to the cross or maybe he was already on the cross and he looked at the uh, to those that were gathered around them about there most of whom at that point were the sisters the women they were about the only ones that hung with him and they were committed and they didn't know what was fully going on they had some idea I think the sisters there Mary Magdalene and and the others that were gathered there I think they had some better idea of the than the apostles of what was going on because they didn't ignore what he was saying like the apostles did you know when Jesus started talking about going to the cross they were just kind of like oh we don't want to hear about that but I think the sisters sat by and listened carefully I think they got it even though they didn't fully understand it. But as Jesus is there, hanging on the cross, he looks and he gives a speech to the daughters of Jerusalem. And he speaks of, of what he was going through and how, how things were going to be in the future in terms of suffering and such. And 
one of the things that he said was this. If they do these things in a green tree, what shall they do in the dry? What does that mean? It means if they do this to the Son of God, the King of kings, if they reject him outright and, and punish and, and do all the things that they did to him, what shall they do to you if they did this to the Son of God? That's about the longest speech that he gives on the cross. Interesting, it says that he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And if you go on through to the next couple chapters in 1 Peter 4 and 19, the apostle Peter addresses you and me. And he says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit, same, similar root word right there, Jesus, whenever he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he was suffered, he didn't threaten back, but he committed himself. You say, well, it looks like he was doing nothing on the cross. No, he was not doing nothing by any means. He was committing himself to him that judgeth righteously. That's the Lord. He was not doing nothing. And furthermore, he was paying for our sins. <laughs> Even if you, say, if you think he was doing nothing, he was paying for our sins. But we are told that he was doing something, not just hanging there aimlessly. It says that he, in his mind, he chose not to threaten back. He chose not to revile them. And there's nobody that has ever existed that could have reviled any more justly than Jesus could. Know ye not that he could have called down ten legions of angels and, and wiped out everybody on the face of the planet? You know, it's said that over in... One of the islands in the Mediterranean that on the day they, they recorded in their history that whenever Jesus was crucified and God blacked out the sun, the, the, the whole world went dark that day. You understand, it wasn't just a little eclipse that affected Judea. <laughs> but in the Mediterranean, there's a, an island there and the historians recorded on that day they confirmed this later that on that particular day the historians recorded and it said the sun was blotted out and you could not see it was dark at noonday and they wrote in their, in their history a god must have died they weren't off were they not a god but the god died that day when the sun was darkened and Christ could have called down any number one angel could have dispatched the entire population of the earth, given a little bit of time. But ten legions of angels. Can you imagine? But he did not revile. He did not threaten. But he committed. He deposited himself in trust with his heavenly father because he knew that his heavenly father had his best interest in mind. How did he know that? Because he is his heavenly father. He is God. And he says to us, Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. In the same way, in a distant, very shadowy type way, because we're not Jesus, but in a distant way, we can commit the keeping of our souls to the Lord when we suffer according to the will of God. Now notice, you know, there's different types of suffering in the word of God. You can suffer for foolish decisions that you've made. That is not necessarily this category. But you say, well, I, then I'm just stuck, right, Brother Tim? No, you're not stuck. There's a word that applies to us whenever we are suffering for foolish decisions that we made. That little word starts with an R and ends with a T. It's called repent. 
You see, you can turn from that foolish decision. You can come out of that foolishness. You can go away from that, see? And then you can find yourself in this category where you're suffering according to the will of God. And you commit the keeping of your soul to Him in well-doing. See that? He didn't say in bad doing or in sinful doing. Commit the keeping of your soul in well-doing. So that begs the question, well, what is well-doing? Maybe we'll speak about some of that and the mechanics of that. Lord willing, if the Lord leads throughout the weekend. But what I want to lay before you here this morning is what it looks like to commit. And it's what Jesus did. You ever been reviled? That means to be barked at or fussed at. And listen, guys, if, if you're young and you're being fussed at and barked at because you're not keeping your room clean or you're not folding your clothes... You know, you don't fall in this category of Jesus that we're talking about here, okay? And, and, you know, whatever you do, you know, don't bark back. Don't revile back, okay? Fold the clothes. By the way, Jesus even folded up his clothes before he came out of the grave. It says that the napkin, it said that the, the, what he had, the shroud over him was folded up. Now, I've, this is totally off the subject, but that, that has stunned me because I'm so prideful. I would have been chomping at the bit to blow that stone out of the way and run out and say, Hey, I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! But Jesus took the time to fold up his clothes and put them right over there by the side. So don't tell me, kids, that you don't have time to fold your clothes. Christ folded his clothes before he came out and announced to the world that he was resurrected. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> that goes against my nature. I want people to see me. I want them to see what I've done. <laughs> Thank goodness I'm not God. Thank goodness. So he says, in the midst of the worst tragedy and trial of Jesus' life, he committed himself to him that judges righteously. And he says to us, wherefore, let him that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. So let's look at Luke 23 and 46, because this is where... Jesus verbalizes what he says, the commitment. It's where he verbalizes it. Towards the end of his time on the cross, Luke 23 and 46, it says, When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It's the same word, commit, commend. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. He verbalized his commitment to God. Have you verbalized your commitment to God? You say, well, yeah, I joined the church. Or, or maybe... You haven't yet. If you see the commitment that Christ has made for you, then you need to verbalize that. Come before the church and say, my only hope is Christ. My only Savior is Jesus. That's verbalizing the commitment and be baptized in the name of the Lord. But what about at work or at school? Look, I'm not talking about going around all the time just saying, hey, Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus the other. I mean, I'm not talking about something that's counterproductive, but I'm talking about in your actions and in what you say and in what you do at work, at home. You know, we like to categorize our lives. I've got my, my church life, I've got my work life where I can be different, and I've got my school life, you know, where I can, I can be different. You know, that's, that's a, you know, the apostles suffered from that. The apostles suffered from that too. You know, whenever Paul showed up and Peter was talking with some Gentiles, people like us, and then some Jews showed up and Peter kind of shunned the Gentiles and he went to be something else with them. So you say, well, nobody can identify with that with me. The apostles did that. And the, and the apostle Paul called him to the carpet. And he said, how can you do that? You, you, you can't categorize your life. You can't be one place way in the workplace, one way at church, one way at home. 
See? you got to be what you're called to be across the board. And I'm going to tell you, you know as well as I do, that it's mostly more difficult to be that way at home than it is. It's great. I, I've joked and said before, well, it's really not a joke, but you know, when we had all five of our, of our young guys in the car, you know, some very, these back here were very small then, you know, it'd be kind of chaotic on a Sunday morning. You know, got to get five little fellas dressed and half of them won't dress like they're supposed to and they got to go change three times because they didn't put on what mom told them to wear. Thank goodness I don't tell them what to wear. It'd be a disaster. <laughs> and so then we get in the car, you know, and every, maybe somebody's yang yang, fussing, fussing with each other, you know. And so we're on the way, be quiet, you know, get ready. We got to worship. Get your worship face on. Come on, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and we walking down the steps or walking up the steps to church, you know, look, you better act right, you better look right. We're going in here to serve God. Let's all serve God and love God today. We love each other. We love our children. Be quiet, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I get it. some of that happens. I mean, it's, it's part of training. It's part of teaching. But, but we've all experienced stuff like that, especially if you have small kids when you're trying to get them ready for church. But we don't need to categorize our life. Think about it. I've thought about this. It's a lot easier to preach on stuff like this away from home than it is, Brother Ronald. I'm a little scared to preach on it back home. But you think about I'm not going to miss 8 o'clock work on Monday morning. But if there's anything that has to go, you know, I can always let church go on Sunday. Which, by the way, is a lot less time-consuming than work. <laughs> 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week. Think about that. And most of the time what we do is we cut loose that which is the easiest thing to cut loose. We usually cut loose church. Well, that's not being... You're showing up on time for work and you're, you're showing up on time for school, even if you're being made to. See, that's, that's not being the same at work as it is at church. See, it's easy to preach on that when you're away from home. You know, you, the only big preacher is a big preacher that's away from home preaching, you know. <laughs> uh, brother, I need you to come back to my church and preach that if you would, brother, okay. <laughs> but the point is, that's not being the same at work. That's categorizing. Well, I can let this go. You know, hey, if you're feeling bad, why not let... Friday go at work and call in sick and get the feeling better so you'll be there and feel better to be there on Sunday instead of wearing yourself out on Friday. See? Or how about this? Just commit yourself to him that judges righteously and even though you do feel bad, just push on through and go anyway. <laughs> so, this is Jesus' answer. By the way, when he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. This was an answer a verbalized answer to the taunting of wicked men. You say, well, Jesus wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing anything on the cross. He was actually answering the taunts of wicked men. Psalm 22 and 6, these are the thoughts of Jesus on the cross. He says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. This is Jesus. This is his thought process on the cross. And all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. That's what they're going around saying while he's on the cross. They shoot out the lip. That means they're doing that. Look, he said he was the son of God. Let him trust in God to bring him down. Oh, let's see if he'll come down. You see, Jesus is verbalizing an answer to what those men were saying as, as he was hanging there on the cross. They said... He trusted on the Lord. Now that word trust right there is an interesting word because it's, not, it's a word that we have to do a little thinking about in order to understand what it meant in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word galal, 
which is, by the way, where the name of the town Gilgal or Gilgal comes from. But it means to roll. It means to roll. If you look up the word throughout the scripture, you'll find that it occurs a lot where someone is rolling a stone like off of a well. So when I read that at first, I was like, what in the world? I, I can't make that connection. But in the Hebrew, they would literally say, they would say it like this, roll over to, to Yahweh. He trusted on the Lord. He said he would roll over and rely on Yahweh, on God. So let him roll over and rely on God because he said he would deliver him. Well, let him deliver him, seeing that he delights in him. Now, it's interesting you know, this is, a, this is poetry. The Psalms are poetry. And so in the Hebrew, the word for trust right there is a synonym with the word for delight. So it's like a song. It's a song. It, it, it rhymes in the Hebrew, and it is a synonym. Very similar words. In the Hebrew, it means to roll your cares upon, to roll upon something. And then delight, it means, to, it, basically it means to wag like a dog would wag his tail. Now, when I was growing up, it made me think of my favorite little dog that I had. I don't know if you've ever read Where the Red Fern Grows, that there was Old Dan and Little Ann, the dogs in Where the Red Fern Grows. And so when I got my little feist dog that was with me for years as a young boy and child and young man growing up on the farm, I combined the two and called him Little Dan. From Old Dan, Little Ann, to Little Dan. And Little Dan was my dog. And little Dan would literally wag himself to pieces. You know, he just would wag to pieces whenever he'd come around, you, around me. He loved me. I'd ride him on the three-wheeler. I'd take him hunting. I mean, I, he was with me. He was my companion. It was kind of lonely. It wasn't like McCool Road today where there's people dotted everywhere and grandkids and, and kids everywhere. It was kind of lonely out there on McCool Road. It was just my brother and I, and he was usually reading novels and wouldn't come out and play with me, so I'd go play with little Dan. <laughs> and by the way, Good for him. He, went, he, he did really well. So I'm not knocking him, but he was very smart. But I was out in the woods playing while he was reading. Me and little Dan. And little Dan would wag himself in two. It's interesting, the comparisons to dogs in the scripture. Probably another message for another time. But did you know the basic word for worship in the New Testament? The root meaning of the word worship in the New Testament is the picture, the picture of a dog licking his master's hand. And that's the picture of worship. I've tried to wrap my mind around worship, Brother Danny, through the years. You know, how in the world can we please God when we are wretched sinners come before the Lord? How can we really do that? And that gives me a pretty good indication of how it pleases God. Now, some of you may say, when my dog comes and licks my hand, you know, I just kind of push him away. You know, don't like that. It's kind of gross, you know. But you can't miss the imagery that's given there. About the only thing that that dog can do to pay you back for the food and the shelter and all the things, you know, the, the, the rubs that you've given him, the scratches behind the ear. I mean, he can't scratch you behind the ear. He can't provide you food. He can't, he can't do those things for you. So he just lick your hand. That's about all that we can do for God. That's about it. That's what worship is. Just, just licking the hand of your master, you see? That's how, that's how you can make it make sense. I can't come with my good works because I just don't have any. My righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I can't come with what I am and what a great person I am. No, I just come and I just lick the hand of my master and that pleases him. Don't ask me how it pleases him, but it does. 
So when they, they said of Jesus, he, he trusted in Jehovah, let him deliver him. He delighted in him. The word delight means to wag the tail like a dog. And it's a synonym with trust. So you can literally read it like this. Roll thyself over to Jehovah. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, seeing he wags like a dog towards him. Not very complimentary in the way that they were presenting that. And what is Jesus' response? Well, it's Luke 23 is quoted also. It's from Psalm 31. And I'll just read these few verses to you as we close. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock, for an house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privately for me. For thou art my strength. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. For thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Read on. I have hated them that have regarded lying vanities. You want to know what Jesus was thinking about what was going on on the cross? He hated the lying vanities that were going on around him. But I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy. For thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul in adversities. And hast not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. Thou hast set my feet in a large room. Where do you think that room was? Whenever the Lord said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he cried out and he gave up the ghost. Where do you think that large room was that the Lord was immediately? Immediately after he gave up the ghost, he commended his spirit into the hands of the one that judges righteously. And he is in heaven, that large room of heaven, delivered. Sometimes we wonder, as the psalmist did, has the Lord clean gone forever? Will he cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Does this promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And the psalmist says, Selah, enough. I've gone on foolishly enough. Because the Lord will never forsake his tender mercies towards us because that's how the commitment of Christ to the Father comes to us. It can only come to us not by your good works, not by how great a person you are. And you may be a great person. If you are, it's because God's blessed you to be. But that's not what the merit on which the Lord comes to us is. It is through the tender mercies of God. The love between the Father and the Son goes out to you through the tender mercies. It's got to come to you that way. It can't come to you any other way. It must be the tender mercies of God. You can't have it any other way. And mercy is being spared from what you deserve. So there's no merit that you have to bring to God. There's no goodness that you can proclaim to Him. Only the goodness of Christ. Only the merit of God. Only the commitment of Christ that brings that to you. So, Christ was committed to his Father, to him that judges righteously. Are you? What does that look like for you? How does that play out for you? I mean, you don't have to go to the cross and die like he did. He did it for you. We hope to speak about that, Lord willing, some more. Charles Wesley in 1740, in a hymn, he wrote, Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear? Me, the chief of sinners, spare? I have long withstood his grace. Long provoked him to his face. Would not hearken to his cause. Grieved him by a thousand falls. 
Can you identify with that? I, my master, have denied. I, afresh, have crucified. Oft profaned his hallowed name. Put him to an open shame. Oh, Lord, help me. There for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love. I know. I feel. Jesus weeps, but loves me still. Now incline me to repent. Let me now my fall lament. Now my foul revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. Commit yourself to him that judges righteously. May the Lord bless you.